0: morning scripture reading is from Proverbs 3 1 through 12. My son do not forget my teaching but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not the steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Find them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Dear Heavenly Father God, thank you so much for this time that we can gather here together, God, to worship you, Lord. I pray that As Stephen comes and shares your word, God, that um, we will all be open to hear what you have to teach to us, God. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.
1: I haven't preached yet with those lights up there. They're very bright. And now that the lights are on, I can see you all, but when it was off, I could see nothing out there. It's amazing. Good morning, everybody. If I have not had the pleasure of meeting you yet, I'm Stephen, one of the elders here at Aletheia. Uh, Normally, Kevin is the one who's up here preaching. He's in the back right there. Raise your hand if anybody wants to look back and look. That's what he looks like if you haven't been to Aletheia yet. Kevin is the lead pastor here at Aletheia. Uh, Over the summer, we like to give him a break. Mostly because uh, preaching takes a lot of time, a lot of time out of his day, and, and, and it's almost like a little vacation for him to get to have some responsibility taken off his plate. And when I was a kid, um, I grew up in church, and, and I used to think that like, being a pastor was like the greatest job in the world. Because you only have to work like two days a week. <laughs> like, you know, and, and even then, you know, on those two days a week, your sermons are 30 to 45 minutes each, so if, even if you do two services or three, it's like an hour and a half, two hours tops. And then you know, 20 minutes on Sunday night or whatever you do on Wednesday. Easy peasy. Uh, as I grew older and uh, learned more and got more involved in church, I realized that actually preaching is maybe a fifth of what the pastor does. And for Kevin, uh, it's really really a fifth of what he does. He also um, has a responsibility of pastoral care and counseling for members of our congregation. Uh, he has some administrative duties that he does. He does evangelism and, and he does discipleship. And with all of that, preaching takes up like 20 plus hours a week. At least it did for me. I don't know. Maybe more practice means less time. But that's a lot of time. It's like half his week is taken up by a fifth of what he does. So over the summer, we like to give him a break. And as an added benefit to you guys, you get to hear other leaders in our church and and young leaders like Isaiah who came and preached last week. He did a great job. If you see him, tell him that. Encourage him. So the next time he preaches, he can do a better job. My first sermon, I did pretty good, pretty okay. My second sermon, I did terrible. So give him some encouragement so that doesn't happen to him. <clears throat> now, as Isaiah mentioned last week, we've been going through uh, some books in the Old Testament, some books from Psalms, some, some of the Psalms, some of the Proverbs. Uh, I love going through those because the Old Testament is one of those things that uh, can be overlooked in the New Testament, with the you know with Jesus and everything that he did, the whole Old Testament points to him. So a lot of times we use it as reference material, or we can overlook it. But the apostles, when they were reading, uh, when they were teaching the New Testament times, and when they were writing scripture, they were reading the Old Testament. This is the body that they stood on, the shoulders that they stood on, the context that they came from. This is the Word of God, the Scriptures. And so we get to look at those and study them. Uh, the Old Testament, we can break it up into like three basic categories. Uh, first, you have the law and the, pro- the, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. It's the books uh, of the Old Testament that have the story of Abraham and his kids, and uh, how they became a nation, how they were enslaved in Egypt, and how they went through toil in the desert and came into the promised land, the giving of the law, and what God expects his standard to be. Then we also have a section called the prophets. Uh, this one I think is pretty easy to ident- identify because we've got all those hard to pronounce names like Obadiah and Habakkuk. That Those are those guys. Those are the prophets. And then the third section is the writings. Uh, these are the histories, the poetry, uh, and the books of wisdom. Uh, books of wisdom being Proverbs, uh, Job, and Ecclesiastes. I always think it's fun to look at these because they tell three completely different aspects of wisdom. Proverbs tells us what wisdom is uh, under normal circumstances. You know, when God created the earth, when he created everything, he set it up with certain laws, like gravity, that we can look at and understand and explain, and people have figured out how to calculate it so that we know exactly if I drop it from a certain distance when it will hit the ground. Under normal circumstances, we can do the same thing with wisdom. Under normal circumstances, when the world is working uh, as it normally does, we can almost put X, Y, and Z into a formula and have it plop out uh, in a certain way. And that's what the book of Proverbs describes. He's describing the normal circumstances and what you normally ought to do and the result that you should normally have. Now, Job, on the other hand, uh, is what happens when that doesn't work, when you do everything you're supposed to do, and still you get these uh, horrible, terrible things happening to you, even though you're doing what you ought. You're trusting God, you're, you're believing what he says, you're doing what he says, and you still have horrible things happen to you. That's not what we see in Proverbs, but that's what we see in Job. So it's a good thing we have that contrast. And then Ecclesiastes is what happens when the world is crazy, nothing makes sense, and nothing matters. Uh, And it's ironically written by the same authors who wrote most of the Proverbs uh, and, and what he learned late in life and the sermons that he preached to young men. But today, we get to look at the way the world normally works. Proverbs 3. Uh, this is a pretty well-known proverb, and so I assume most of you uh, have heard part of it before. Um, we're going to we're going to look at uh, verses five through twelve. Um, so let me pray for us, and we'll go ahead and get started. God, Jesus, I pray that you would bless us with your presence this morning. I pray that you would teach us your ways that you would help us to submit to Scripture and learn from you in everything. God, I pray that my thoughts and my tongue wouldn't wander uh, and that I would be laser-focused on this task and this word that you've given me to speak. Lord Jesus, I pray these things in your name. Amen. So, again, as, as Isaiah pointed out last week, at Aletheia Church, we like to go through things book by book and verse by verse. Typically, uh, during the normal course of the year, we will take a book and we'll go through it chronologically from beginning to end. Now that doesn't really lend itself very well to a summer study that's short and we're going through massive books like Psalms and Proverbs. So we have a selection that we've taken and that we're going through. Um, Now, the other style of teaching is called topical teaching. And occasionally uh, you get these areas in a book where you will have a set of verses and they line up with a topic. And so you get to do a little bit of both. And that's what we're going to have this morning. What we're looking at this morning is trust. Trust is vital to relationships. Trust is vital to every relationship that we have, from working relationships and and business relationships, to friendships, to family relationships, and romantic ones. Trust is vital. With a lack of trust, Any relationship you have is going to be shallow, trite, and just worthless. Uh, And I don't have to work very hard for you guys to understand what I mean. Uh, We've all had circumstances in our lives where trust has been broken. Usually, it happens in grade school when you tell your your best friend a secret, and then the next day, the whole school knows you have a crush on so-and-so. And it's super embarrassing. And we promise ourselves we're never going to let that happen again. But we do, and our trust gets broken again, or it gets confirmed. And over and over again, we learn this this, uh, way that we can trust people and who we can trust and what we can trust them with. Some people can be trusted with a big secret. Some people can be trusted with a little secret. Some people can be trusted with no secrets at all. Some people can be trusted to count the money drawer after their shift at work. Some people can't be trusted to work when the manager's not looking at them. It all has to do with trust. And we all have our own ways of figuring out who we can trust and who we can't. So that when we trust someone with a thing, we can know that they won't hurt us with it. We can believe them when they tell us something and trust that they will believe us. We've all been burned at one point or another. Uh, we take great care in who we can trust and who we can't. Um, now, every time we trust someone, or when we're building a relationship, no matter how much we study a person and look at what the characteristics of their life are, no matter how much we, care, no matter how careful we are, there is always a moment—the first time that we trust them—where we take a leap of faith. Now, most people don't associate immediately the two words, trust and faith. But from my point of view, from Christian point of view, the words are very closely linked. Trust is earned, but faith is given. Trust is earned through a leap of faith. Now, not blind faith. Like I said, a lot of us will take great care in studying a person before we give them some trust. You know, <clears throat> we are not supposed to turn our brains off as the world would accuse us of doing when we go to church. We, we don't exercise blind faith. We exercise informed faith. We study and, and learn who we can trust and how we can build it. In the same way, the author of Proverbs asks us to take a step of faith and trust God. Listen to what he said in verse 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Now he tells us that we need to trust God with our whole heart. It's easier said than done. In order to trust like this, we have got to believe first that God is strong enough to take care of us, that he's good enough and wise enough to have our best interests at heart, and finally, that he's even willing to help us. We must also seek first his word. We must seek his advice and his direction for every decision in our lives. Not only when the choice and the path ahead of us is difficult, but also when it might be plain. We still need to go to him and seek his counsel first. Not easy. According to Solomon, there are three ways that we can trust God wholeheartedly. The first one, trust in the Lord's wisdom. We can build trust in God by trusting in his wisdom. Verse 7, Solomon says, Be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. We have to submit ourselves humbly to the scriptures we have to learn from them and fill our minds with the truth that is found there the apostle paul essentially quotes this in the new testament Uh, in romans 12 verse 16 he says live in harmony with one another do not be haughty but associate with the lowly never be wise in your own sight Paul went a little bit farther in a different uh, book that he wrote in 1 Corinthians. He went a little bit farther with this explanation. He says in uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 18-20, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Do you see what God thinks of human wisdom? He doesn't think very much of it. Now that's not to say that we always get it wrong. There's a saying, uh, "Even a blind squirrel finds a nut every now and then." You know We don't always get it wrong, but <clears throat> the principle is that our wisdom is distorted. Human wisdom is broken. Uh, In theology we call it total depravity. It means every single part of us from our minds to our bodies is totally broken. Every part of us is broken. Our mental capacities are broken by the consequences of sin. So we can't have the proper reasoning that God created us to have. For that reason, he sent the Holy Spirit. One of the, one of the responsibilities of the Holy Spirit, one of the things that he does is he helps us to understand. He helps us to give wisdom from God's word. Because without him, there's no way we'd be able to do it. In 1 Corinthians 2, 6-10, Paul says, Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for glory. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. The role that the Holy Spirit has is to impart us with wisdom, to impart us with knowledge and truth from God's word. Without him, we would be unable to understand it. Without him, uh, we would be unable to get the truth that we're supposed to get from Scripture. Uh, and, And by relying on the power of the Spirit, by relying on his power in prayer as we read and study the Scriptures, we're able to see the truth of Scripture, and see the truth of Scripture applied to our own lives. And through that, we are able to build trust in God. Trust in God is built through following the wisdom of the Lord in Scripture. That's number one. Number two, trust in the Lord's provision. Verses 9 and 10 Uh Solomon says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barn will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Yes, we are about to talk about money. Uh, When I was in school, my professors all told me that this would be a very, very hard subject to preach on for two reasons. Number one, as a pastor, your salary and your livelihood are drawn from what is given to the church. So, if you preach on it a lot, or at all, people might think that you're being self-serving, that you are trying to get a raise, and that you're trying to help yourself. Number two, people don't like being told what to do with their money. Luckily for me, uh, Kevin only is is the only full-time pastor employed by Aletheia Church. The other pastors and myself and the elders uh, are all 100 percent volunteer. We don't draw a dime from the church. We are all volunteers. So I don't have to worry about being (laughs) self-serving. Because it doesn't benefit me whatsoever what's given to the church. Now as for the second statement, people don't like being told what to do with their money. That's very true and I don't either. But, I'm not going to tell you what to do with your money. The scriptures are going to tell you what to do with your money. And they only say this, honor the Lord with your wealth and the first fruits of your produce. It's easy, right? Now, in the tradition of the church, I've often heard the word tithe mentioned. How many of you have heard the word tithe? How many of you know what it means? Oh, good. I don't have a whole lot of work to do. Now, let me say right off the bat, I do not believe that the Bible requires Christians to tithe in the New Testament. I do not believe that the Bible requires Christians to tithe. Now, let me explain, because I'm getting confused looks, angry looks, and joyful looks. (laughs) The word tithe means tenth. And it's used several times in the books of the law in Genesis to refer to how Abraham uh, and his grandson Jacob gave a tenth of all that they possessed to the Lord and the Lord's representative. Now later on in the books of the law, God commanded Moses in the law that the Israelites should follow that pattern, giving a tenth of all that they had to the priests and the Levites, for the ministry and for taking care of the poor. They give a tenth to the ministry, a tenth to the Levites, tenth to the poor, a tenth to the temple. If you calculate it all up, it's 14 tithes over a period of seven years. In case you're keeping count, how much is that? What percentage is that? A lot? That's not a percent. Thank you, Brent. 20%. That's a lot more than 10%. Per year, they were required to do this. 20%. The teachings of the New Testaments don't call Christians to tithe. They don't use the word tithe. The principle is wrapped up in the civil elements of the Mosaic Covenant. The New Testament is very clear that we are no longer under the Mosaic Law. Just read the book of Galatians if you doubt me on this. The whole book is devoted to us not being under the law. However, the principles of the law and the principles of the tithe still apply. The New Testament instructs us to give. It instructs us all to give. To give faithfully and joyfully, generously. Uh, 2 Corinthians 9, 6-8 says this. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So what does this mean? Not reluctantly. So if we give, as we give, we shouldn't be holding on to it as we drop it in the box. We should give generously. We should give uh, joyfully. We should also not give under compulsion. That means we do not require you to give, uh, nor do we require you to give a certain amount, nor do we require you to give to the church. But the principle is that we give generously. In most situations, giving generously uh, in the United States is going to mean probably more than 10%. Some situations it won't. But uh, it also do- it doesn't mean that the principle of that tithe doesn't apply. Might not be exactly 10%, might be more, but the principle still applies. Now, personally, uh, I divide my giving up into a tithe and uh, elsewhere. So I give 10% to the church. That's what God has laid on my heart to do that is not in Scripture, that is not required, that is what God has laid in my heart to do, then I give another percentage to missionaries and organizations here in the States and around the world. So it is not required, but the principle of the tithe is what I use in my giving. Now, I think that the reason that most people are nervous about tithing or really giving in general is because they fear that they won't have enough left to live on. They fear they won't have enough left to enjoy. Well, God wants us to enjoy the things that he's created. He wants us to enjoy our lives. He doesn't want us to pauper ourselves to help somebody else. How does that make sense? The, Old, the New Testament, uh, most of the situations where they're told to give, they're giving to help poor Christians. So why should I put myself in poverty to help somebody else who's in poverty? That doesn't make sense. But we ought to give generously not out of our bounty, not out of what's left over after we take what we want, but out of the first fruits, just as Solomon says, out of the first fruits of your produce. We don't give what's left over. We give decided uh, at the beginning, before it comes in. And The scriptures help us with this promise, this fear that we have of not being provided for. Because they promise that God will provide for us. Jesus himself, during his greatest sermon in Matthew uh, 6, he tells us that he will provide for us. And how? He says in Matthew 6.25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? A little farther down, in verse 33, he says this, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. All these things, food and clothing, you're going to be provided for. You don't have to worry about that. God will take care of you. Jesus, still farther down in the same sermon, Matthew 7, verse 7 through 11, says and it will be given to ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be open. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your father who is in heaven give things to those who ask him? Now, these are just a scant few selections of what the Bible says about God's provision and this is specifically what Jesus says about God's provision. So if you can trust anyone, trust him. In contrast, we are n- we we ought not to trust in ourselves and our own ability to provide. We also ought not to hoard our possessions and treat it like a security blanket. That is not why you have a job as a Christian. That is not the purpose of providing for yourself. We also ought not to see God as some kind of a cosmic banker where we give money in and he pays us back interest with our own return. That's not what's going on. This is not a formula for becoming wealthy. This is not a formula for uh, becoming affluent. This is God taking care of his children and seeing that their needs are met. So as we trust in the Lord, as we trust in his provision, and see that being worked out in our lives, trust will be built by relying on his provision. That's number two. Number three, trust in the Lord's discipline. Verses 11 and 12 of Proverbs 3. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be wary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him who he loves, as a father the son in whom he delights. Sometimes we're going to sin. I'm sure that surprises all of you. Sometimes we're going to face the consequences of that sin. Sometimes we're going to be disciplined by the Lord because of it. Now, most of the time, the consequences of that sin are the discipline of the Lord. Just like he set up the principles of the world, just like gravity, just like the, the principles that he set up that we are studying in Proverbs, the consequences of sin are set up in such a way to discipline us. There are natural consequences to sin. One of the passages in Scripture that I can think of as an example for this is the story of King David and his affair with Bathsheba. Now, King David uh, is the guy that wrote most of the Psalms. He's described as being a man after God's own heart. Uh, And Isaiah talked a little bit about the end of this story uh, last week. King David, uh, at one point in his life, he was... Supposed to be out with the troops on campaign. That is where he was supposed to be. But instead, he stayed back and he stayed home and was not where he was supposed to be. And while he was there, he was sitting out on his balcony uh, watching the roofs and, and he saw a woman bathing on the roof and he saw that she was beautiful and he had an affair with her. Now, her husband was on campaign where David was supposed to be. He was in the army. And as a consequence of David's affair with Bathsheba, she became pregnant. Sin, natural consequence. See how that works? When you try to make a baby, you're going to make a baby. It just happens. I don't know why people are surprised now. I don't understand the term surprise pregnancy. I just, I don't get it. You, you, ha- you should have known it was coming. <laughs> <laughs> um. effective does not mean 100% effective. But when this consequence happened, David freaked out, as I'm sure most of people would, uh, and he tried to cover it up. And he tried to lie about it. When he couldn't lie about it, he had her husband killed. And then he married her. And he thought that was the end of it. But God knew what he had done. And God sent his prophet Nathan to confront David about it. And Nathan told David the consequences of that sin. And the consequences were these. The child was going to die. The child uh, of sin was not going to survive. And there was going to be, the sword would never depart from David's house. There was going to be strife in David's house. There was going to be an uprising. There was going to be a rebellion. And as we heard last week about Absalom's rebellion, David's son rebelled against him, rallied the people of Israel, deposed him as king, and chased him out of the city and tried to kill him. But David, by this point, had learned his lesson. And he had learned to trust God. There was no promise that David was going to be restored to the throne. There was no promise that it was all going to be fine in the end and it was all going to work out. There was no promise that he wasn't going to be killed by his own son. But he he trusted in God. And look at his reaction as he's fleeing from the city. 2 Samuel 15, verse 25 and 26. And Abathar came up. And behold, Zadok came up also with the Levites, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they sat down the Ark of God until the people had passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see it, both it and its dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let it be done to me what seems good to him. That's amazing. For this guy who tried everything to cover up his sin, he completely and totally submitted to God's judgment. Completely submitted to the judgment that God had ordained for him. Now, in the end, God did restore David to the throne. The the rebellion ended in failure and Absalom was killed. And after uh, the rebellion, as David came back into the city and came back into his throne, he exercised the wisdom that God had shown him, and he pardoned everyone that was a part of the rebellion. He pardoned the people that had rebelled against him. And in a moment of Christ-like attitude, he took on himself the responsibility for the whole thing because he knew because it had been told to him before that this was the consequences of his sin. This was the consequences God had laid on him for uh, the affair and for covering it up and for murder. And he knew that. And so he pardoned everyone that was associated with it, including a guy who had betrayed him uh, in the midst of it somebody that had eaten at his own table. In the same way, we need to be aware that there are consequences for our sins. Even though Christ paid the penalty for us, even though the price has been paid for, God still puts us through the consequences of our sin to teach us And to make us more into the image of his son. To make us more like Jesus. In theology, we use the word sanctification. That's what it is. To be made more like Jesus. So if you ever hear that word, now you know what it means. Trust in the Lord is gained by undergoing the discipline of God and coming through the other side more like him. That's number three. So if we claim to have a relationship with God, if we claim to have a relationship with the Lord, then we ought to trust him. We ought to trust him wholeheartedly. And the more we develop a relationship with him, the more that trust should grow. Trust because of the wisdom of God. Trust because of the provision of God. And trust because of the discipline of God. These things should cause the relationship to grow deeper and more full and for trust to grow. This is the heart of the passage. This is the heart of this sermon. It's the point on which all other points hinge and it comes back to verse five and six. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. And he will make straight your paths. If you get nothing else from the message this morning, I want it to be this. Trust in the Lord, go to him first. Before anything else, in every situation that arises in your life, go to him first. And don't worry about what the world thinks or says. Everything that life has to throw at you, submit to him humbly in prayer before you do anything else. Orient your whole life around him and his path and his will and his precepts and his wisdom and his law. And he will make your life a path straight for you. Read and ponder on his word. Think about it. Meditate on it. Contemplate what it means, not only in its context, but in your own life. Memorize it. Get the wisdom out of it, and it will come out when you most need it. Go to him first. When you have aches and pains in your body because you worked out yesterday and you're sore, when you have a headache, go to him first before you pull out the Tylenol. When you are out of work and you need a job or just graduated and you're looking for what to do next, go to him first before you do the sensible thing and go look at job postings. Go to him first. When you are heartbroken, go to him first before you turn to your friends and counselors. When you are lonely, go to him first before you turn to anything else. When you have just sinned, go to him first. That's one of the hardest things to do, especially after you've sinned. Because if you're in the moment of it and you know it happened, the last thing you want to do is go before a holy God that you know you just disobeyed. But it's the best thing to do. It's the best thing for your heart to go and seek repentance. When you have a difficult path before you, when you don't know where to go, seek him first. Remember the wisdom of God. Remember the scriptures that you memorized as a kid. God, uh, your your, your, your word is a lamp under my feet and a light under my path. God, show me where to go. Show me what to do. Let it come out. Let God's wisdom come through you and teach you in those moments. The greatest part about this is that we don't have to do this stepping out in blind faith because God has promised assurance that what we ask in his name will be done for us. Over and over again, Jesus says it throughout all the gospels. One of the ones I picked out was John 14, 14. He says it very plainly. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. This I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. He says it twice, right in a row, just so that we get the picture. Go to him first. Trust in his word. Trust in his goodness, in his faithfulness, and in his wisdom. And as we go out this morning, I want you to... Think about ways that you can trust God. The band is going to come back up in a few moments and we're going to take communion. Uh, and as we do, before you come up, please reflect on this. Please reflect on what God's Word is saying, what God's Word is saying in your own heart and in your own life. Reflect on ways that you aren't trusting God and how you can in the future. Reflect on ways that God has proven Himself in the past. Reflect on ways. That God has shown his mercy and that shown his greatness and his glory in your life. That he's shown his word true. Mostly, God, just guys, just reflect on Jesus and what he's done for us and the boldness and the confidence that he's given us through faith in him. That we can come before an Almighty God with him as the mediator and throw ourselves on his mercy and his love because he has adopted us as sons and fellow heirs with him. Because he has given us everything. Everything that we are, every bit of righteousness that we possess is all thanks to him. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. God, thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for your provision. God, thank you also for the hard discipline. God, as we reflect this morning, as we go out before you, God, as we live our lives throughout the week as your church, God, help us to see you. Help us to trust you. Help us to be your people wherever we are. Help us to be ambassadors for you. Help us to Show our friends who you are. Show our coworkers who you are. Lord Jesus, I pray and ask these things in your name. Amen.